Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are working through 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you have a copy of God's Word in hand, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. And we're reading, uh, just by way of introduction this morning, verses 17 down through the end of the chapter in verse 34. Now we're not going to get into this in a lot of uh, textual detail this morning. This week's message is kind of setting us up for the exposition that we'll have in the coming weeks. But it is on this topic, and so I want us to look at that this morning. Um, and Paul says this in writing to the Corinthians. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must be also factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Now, starting in chapter 11, verse 2, we saw last Sunday and continuing all the way into chapter 14, Paul is graciously giving his authoritative counsel on the dysfunction and debate that was surrounding their corporate worship gathering as the church. We saw last Sunday in verses 2 to 16, there was debate and dysfunction around the God-given roles of men and women in the church. And uh, in our text that we just read this morning, we see that there is debate and dysfunction in their midst around the Lord's table. And then as you get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to unpack and clarify the debate and dysfunction that is surrounding spiritual giftedness and how they were using that and appropriating that in the life of the church. But our text this morning is what our, we're most concerned about in 17 to 34. And in this, these verses, the Spirit prompts Paul to address the dysfunction that was marking out their, their engaging with their practice of the Lord's table. Now, he's already given them some instruction on this topic, and we saw that back in chapter 10 when he was prohibiting them from participating in any sacrificial meals that were being offered to false gods. That was something that was very common, very much a part of their lives before Christ and a part of the culture that they lived in. 
But in verses 14 to 22, he doesn't and didn't address the, the wrong ways in which they were practicing the ordinance itself. He doesn't say anything about it. He appeals to it to make his, his argument, his theological argument. But as we come to chapter 11 this morning, in these verses, Paul is going to attempt to set things upright in their midst. And he's going to do that in kind of three parts. Um, which we'll get to uh, in the coming weeks here, but he, he's going to rebuke them for their conduct around the Lord's table in the first section there, 17 to 22, and then he's going to remind them exactly what the Lord's table signifies, and those are the verses that we're the most familiar with. And then he's going to recalibrate their approach to the Lord's table to ensure all is being done decently and in order in the last part from verses 27 down through verse 34. The Corinthian church had taken one of the essential components that make the church a church, and they had so badly messed it up that what they were doing could barely, or not properly speaking, be called the Lord's table anymore. And you, you see him kind of allude to that in verse 19. He's, in, in verse 20, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, he says, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And, um, and then he says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, whatever you're doing, whatever it is I'm hearing about, whatever that is, it's not the Lord's table in the way that the Lord intended it. That's kind of the vernacular of what he says there in verses 19 and 20. And so he goes on then in verses 23 to 26 to remind them and us what the Lord's table signifies, what it means, and why it's important, which is nothing less than uh, the heart of our Christian faith. It is Christ's atoning work at the cross for the forgiveness of sins put on full display. But before we get into all of that, you remember back in chapter 10, when we looked at those verses, 14 to 22, um, that I promise you we would would unpack the significance of the Lord's table in more detail because we really just kind of moved past it to make our bigger point. Um, And so I promise we would dig down in a little more more detail. And so I'm striving to be a a man of my word, and we're going to do that this morning. This morning my goal is to take some time in the word to help us trace the development of the Lord's table all the way back, all the way back uh, to Israel's exodus from Egypt, and then we're going to trace it up through the Gospels into the church's present practice, and then onward to the end of the age when our faith will become sight. So there's kind of four parts to what we're going to look at this morning. And my hope and my prayer as we go through this material this morning is that it will give us a renewed, I think, appreciation and expectation, hopefully, as we come around the Lord's table this morning and in the weeks and months to come. We have to keep in mind that this ordinance did not just drop out of the sky to the church. Its roots run deep into God's plan of salvation as it unfolded through his covenant people Israel culminating in the person and work of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And it has been received by the church, really, with um, the exodus out of Egypt as the backdrop and heaven as uh, in front of us on the horizon. If we don't see it in all of its panoramic beauty, in all of its weightiness, then just like the Corinthians, we run the risk of coming to the Lord's table for worse and not as Christ intended for the better. 
And that the Lord's table then is, is just something that we tack on at the end of our worship service once a month. If that's all it is, we are cutting ourselves off from a vital wellspring of future hope and really present unity in the church now. And so I want to break the text down into, into kind of four, four parts this morning. And our survey begins, it begins, this panorama of the Lord's table begins in Egypt with God's chosen people, Israel. Abraham's descendants, who in the book of Exodus are now as numerous as the stars of heaven, found themselves in bondage in a foreign nation in Egypt. They were slaves. They were being crushed under the oppression of Pharaoh's rule. And, uh, and when God had had enough, he remembered his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he, and he prom- because he promised them that he would give them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And so what we do see at the beginning of the book of Exodus is Moses is enlisted to secure Israel's release. And we see that in Exodus chapter 2. In verse 23, it says, Now it came about in the course of those days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their and and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. And so God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Of course, um, We know, well, God appears in the burning bush in chapter 3 to Moses and tells him that he is going to be used as God's servant to lead Israel out of captivity, and we we know that narrative well. But, uh, of course, when he came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not particularly interested in letting all of that free labor just walk out the door, and so God was called, uh, called, used uh, Moses to rain down plague after plague on the Egyptians while at the same time supernaturally sparing and preserving Israel where they dwelt in the land of Goshen. And we know that through these chapters 6, 7, and 8, we see these plagues 9 and all unfold. Uh, Pharaoh is brought to the brink many, many times, but each time relents and changes his, his mind and fails to agree to Israel's release. Uh, but finally, God promised to take the firstborn of everything in Egypt as a tenth and final plague, he promised to take the firstborn of everything in Egypt because Pharaoh had stubbornly refused to um, let God's firstborn, Israel, leave. And we see this previewed in chapter 4 of Exodus in verse 22. Uh, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son, meaning Israel, go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, he says, look, I will kill your son, your firstborn. This is God previewing what was to come. And of course, all nine of those plagues unfold. And in each step along the way, each step along the way, Pharaoh refuses to let Israel leave. And so finally, what was previewed is promised to happen in Exodus chapter 11. 
If you turn ahead there, you'll see in verses uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. And verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And so with this 10th and final plague poised now to devastate Egypt, God sets the stage for Israel's deliverance by instructing them to take an unblemished one-year-old sheep or goat to sacrifice it and then to put some of its blood over the top and sides of the doorposts of their home to roast the sacrifice and to eat all of it that night. And God instructed Israel to eat the meat of the sacrifice with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And he says in chapter 12 that he wants Israel to eat it in a very specific way. It says in verse 11 of chapter 12, he says, uh, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, this meal was not to be a celebratory feast that they could sort of ease into and, and lounge around and enjoy. It was a meal to be eaten with the expectation of leaving soon and permanently for good. But this meal was so much more than just a meal. The blood around the doorpost was for the people's salvation. And we see that in chapter tw uh, verse 12 of chapter 12. He says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God promised that he would take the firstborn of everything except for those who had the blood upon the doorpost. And that is exactly what he did. As you look at the end of chapter 12 in verse 29, it says, Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out, this is Moses, uh, Pharaoh, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. In other words, Pharaoh said, Enough get out, go. And of course, later on, we see that they also took a lot of stuff from Egypt with them. They plundered the Egyptians as, it's, as it were. But it's here in this Passover that we see a pattern. And it is a pattern that we're going to see again and again throughout the scriptures. And it's this, that God's wrath passes over his people, not because of their inherent goodness or inherent worthiness, but by the gracious covering of a substitute and a sacrifice. And so, so significant was this Passover meal and God's redemption out of slavery that followed from this, 
that God then commands Israel to celebrate and remember this Passover year after year as an ongoing memorial. Every year they were to clean out all the leaven from their homes and to slaughter the appropriate animal as God had prescribed in his law and to roast it and to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And every year, as they commemorated this Passover, the people would be reminded of how God had rescued them from bondage. And the younger generation, of course, would learn from this. And each generation that followed would learn from the meal how the Lord God had spared his chosen ones, how he had fulfilled his promise to set them free and to make them his beloved people. And we see this didactic, this teaching function in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 26. He says, and when your children say to you, what does this rite mean, this meal that we're celebrating? You shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. See, the first Passover meal marked the birth of a nation, essentially, and a people of promise were rescued by God himself from slavery slavery to become his treasured possession. And every subsequent Passover meal celebrated year after year reminded Israel not just who they were, right, God's chosen people, but it also reminded them how they were, which was a people saved through the sacrifice of blood. And I think it's important to note that on the night before God's definitive work of deliverance, what did he do? He gave them a meal to celebrate from that point forward. They all celebrated it, and no one was to be exempt from that. We see that later on in chapter 12. Foreigners were not allowed to celebrate the Passover unless they had converted to the worship of Yahweh. In fact, in chapter 12, verse um, 47, it says, all the congregation are to celebrate this. In other words, it's for the nation of Israel, all of them. But he says, if a stranger sojourns with you and someone who is not a who, who is not uh, truly a worshiper of Yahweh and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, he says, let, if he's going to do that, let all his males be circumcised and let them, let, then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land. But he says, no uncircumcised person, no Gentile may eat of it. And so the point was that it was for the people of God, and as the people of God rehearsed their salvation through the Passover, God's past act of deliverance was brought forward into the present in a real and spiritual way. The Passover meal told every Israelite, young and old, that they had once been a slave in Egypt and that their God, the only true God, is a God who rescues and sets free. And so we see the Passover really is kind of the beginning, the beginning of this panorama. It starts with the Lord's table. Uh, it, the Lord's table, that panorama begins in Israel with the Passover. But it, secondly, it finds its fullest significance in the gospel record. And that's the second point I want to make this morning. The, the Lord's table finds its fullest significance in, in the gospel record where the Lord Jesus takes that Passover meal and elevates it invests it with greater and more glorious meaning, turning it into what we know as the Lord's table. And, and just by way of kind of illustration, think about a serious commitment that you've made in your life. Um, 
Maybe uh, if you've ever taken on a mortgage or purchased a home with a, with a mortgage, you, you, you've done, you know, that's a pretty significant commitment. Or maybe student loans, depending on what you went to school and how many loans you took out, that, that could be a pretty significant chunk of money. Or, or when you were married, if you've been married, you, you no doubt that is a serious commitment that you've made. For each one of those, you have made some kind of binding sign or pledge of your commitment in order to do that. For a mortgage, you probably had to sign half a million pieces of paper, right? Everything that you would do to pay back the bank in the way and the, the manner that they agreed to. For student loans, you probably had to fill out applications and a bunch of um, uh, sign your name to a bunch of pieces of paper to get funding for your tuition. If you're married, you made vows before God and before others. And uh, you probably had to sign a marriage license uh, before the state, and you exchanged rings that you wear uh, as husband and wife, all of those as signs of your covenant commitment one to another. When Christ confirmed God's greatest promise to his people, he didn't sign a piece of paper, and he didn't dawdle through an application or wear a ring. When Christ confirmed God's covenant promise to his people, the seal of his commitment was his own blood. The night before Christ went to the cross, the gospel record tells us Jesus celebrated the Lord's Passover with his disciples. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 22, we see one eyewitness account of that scenario. In Luke chapter 22 in verses 14 and 15, we see our Lord in the upper room, and it says, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table to celebrate the Passover, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. My guess is the disciples thought this was going to be a Passover just like every other Passover, in which they would celebrate the transform, the, God's temporal deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. But what they didn't realize was that this was going to be transformed into a meal that would celebrate God's final and complete deliverance from the power of sin and death, both for Israel and the nations. And I think it's just as an aside, it's interesting, God's law taught that Israel, um, taught Israel that the Passover was to be celebrated within families, by families, right? It was the Passover meal where fathers would teach their sons, well, this is what this signifies, and this is the meaning behind it. But the Passover that the Lord's, celebrates here. You notice his earthly family is nowhere around. There's no Mary, there's no Joseph, there's no James or any of his other half-brothers. He is with who? His disciples, his followers. And I think that that is intentional. And by celebrating and transforming this Passover as he does with those who weren't his earthly family, Jesus, I think, affirms that his family are those who receive his sacrifice but in the middle of this Passover meal, in the upper room, Jesus, it says, took bread, verse 19 tells us, and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for you. What's going on here? What is Jesus doing here in this, in this Passover meal? 
To put it quite simply, Jesus is retooling the Passover meal for his disciples so that going forward, instead of teaching about Israel's past deliverance out of Egypt temporally, it will now teach them how to understand the sacrificial death that he was about to die the next day at the cross. Jesus was going to truly give his body for his disciples in their place. Jesus was truly going to shed his blood, as Matthew's gospel reminds us, for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death would finally, once and for all, bring God's promised new covenant to life. This cup, he says, is the new covenant established in my blood. He says it is shed for you. What is he referring to? Well, we all know Centuries before, God had promised to make a covenant, a new covenant with his people. We see that recorded for us in Jeremiah's God, in Jeremiah the prophet's writings in, in chapter 31, particularly in verses 31 to 34. And in this new covenant, God promised that he would write his word on his people's hearts, inscribe it on their hearts. He promised to transform them from the inside out. He promised that God, through this new covenant, would... Um, that all would know him in a close and personal way, from the least to the greatest. He promised that he would forgive their sins, past, present, and future, remembering them no more, that he would take of his spirit and put it within the heart of his people. All of that, Jesus is saying, is now about to happen through his death. God the Father is going to seal his new covenant promise in Jesus' own blood. And so Jesus then takes the bread that would normally have been broken at the beginning of a Passover meal, and he says, this is my body. And then later in the meal, he takes the cup, and he says, this is my blood. You say, well, what does he mean? What is Jesus doing taking these physical elements of the meal the way he does and connecting them to himself? What, what is he doing? The answer is he's making the bread in the cup a sign of the new covenant. He's tying them to God's new covenant promises like you and I might connect a ring to a wedding vow. Right? When I married Trisha, I gave her a ring and I said, this is my promise to you to love you, to cherish you, to provide for you. And whenever you see it on your finger, you should remember my commitment to you. See, Jesus wasn't saying that the elements, these, this bread and this cup, were transformed into himself, wasn't transubstantiated as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodoxy teach. That's, that's not what the Scriptures teach. Nor was he teaching God's physical presence in, around, or with the physical elements. Jesus was naming the physical elements by what they point to. And he did that in the strongest possible terms that language can express. If Jesus had said, this is like my body, that doesn't have nearly the same impact as saying, this is my body. Right? It's a tighter comparison. It's meant to bind our hearts to Christ and his sacrifice in the closest possible terms. 
And so just as the first Passover meal was a memorial to be regularly repeated year after year, Jesus turned the last Passover with his disciples into a new memorial and a new meal to be regularly repeated that defines the identity and the community of those who are saved by Jesus' death. At the cross, God saved a people for himself through the blood of Christ's sacrifice. At the cross, God freed his people in every age from sin's bondage and its power and made them his own. And just as he did before the exodus out of Egypt, the night before Christ's redemptive work at the cross for his people, God gave us a meal to celebrate from that point onward, a meal that defines God's new people in Christ. And as God's people, his church, rehearsed the story of their salvation through the Lord's table, that decisive act of deliverance is brought forward into the present. So the Passover, which now has been transformed by our Lord into his table, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, tells every Christian, young and old, that though they had once been a slave to sin and under divine judgment, that their God, the only true God, is a God who rescues and sets free. But there's a third component to this panorama of the Lord's table, which begins with God's people Israel, finds its fullest significance in the gospel, and that is thirdly, the Lord's table marks out the gathering of the church. The Lord's table marks out the gathering of the church. The present perspective of the Lord's table in this life that we have, in this church, in, in the church, I should say, like so many dimensions of the Christian life, I believe the Lord's table has become hyper-individualistic. The present perspective that we have, many Christians have, and I, I confess I have had this mindset for many, many years. When they think about the Lord's table, when I think about the Lord's table, so often I think about it in terms of my own private devotion. I go to church, I hear the scriptures taught, I eat bread and drink the cup. I remember Christ's atoning work at the cross for my sins. I go home. For many of us, that's as far as we go as we think about the Lord's table. But we need to have a more robust viewpoint of the Lord's table because it plays a vital role in making a church a church. The Lord's table essentially constitutes, composes um, creates, if you will, a, a local church and takes that from being just a gaggle of gospel-believing individuals into one body. If you go back to our actual text in 1 Corinthians 11 for just a minute, I just want you to notice, and we'll, we'll look at this in more detail next Sunday, I just want you to notice what Jesus says about uh, and how he addresses them on this issue of the Lord's table. In verse 17, he speaks about them coming together. Again, in verse 18, he says, when you come together. Verse 20, when you meet together. Um, later on in verse 23, he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's a plural imperative. Y'all do this in remembrance of me. Same thing in verse 25, do this in remembrance of me together. 
Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then you look down at verse 33, it says, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The Lord's table is something the entire local church does and does as one body. It's not something that individuals do. It is not something that a small group would do. It is not something that a family does. It is something that the church does. It's not a private meal between friends. It is a corporate commemoration of our fellowship with Christ himself and with one another. This language that we saw in chapter 10 of sharing in the body and the blood of Christ, it refers to, we said, our sharing in those provisions of the new covenant ratified by Christ's death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the grave. So when we gather at the Lord's table, as we are this Sunday, as the church, that table becomes a fellowship meal where in the presence of God, through his spirit, his people look in faith back to the cross and thus realize its benefits of the new covenant in our lives anew. So through our participation in the Lord's table, we are reaffirming that through Christ's death, we are all individually shares in Christ's eternal life, but that we are also bound to one another in the church. And that's why he says what he says in verse 17 of chapter 10. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Through the Lord's table, our common life together in and with Christ is commemorated and celebrated. The act itself gives expression to our union with Christ and our unity in Christ as his church. I mean, just think about it. God builds his church in two ways, in two steps, if you will. First, he sends out disciples to preach his gospel, his good news. This good news that Christ came to save sinners and that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And he simultaneously sends out his spirit to enable some who hear that message to repent and to believe on Christ as Lord. And he creates, essentially, through that gospel preaching, a gospel people who have been born again through faith, and baptism, the ordinance of baptism, becomes their public testimony of God's saving work in their lives. And when you and I came to Christ, we were made members of Christ's universal body, the church, and we are one with him through faith. But there's a second component that goes hand in glove. You can't have one without the other. Christ also builds his church by bringing individuals into faith, uh, united to him by faith, but he also brings them into fellowship with each other. And that coming together requires a commitment one to another. Every, and, and think about this. Every time you bump into another Christian in the grocery store or in the break room at work, right? A new church is not created, right? A church doesn't automatically exist every time two or more Christians are in the same room or in the same city. A church is more than just Christians, plural. There has to be something binding a particular people together. A gospel-believing people have to form a gospel community. And a church is created when 
Christians commit themselves to be a church together as a church. And it's the same with a marriage. We understand that. A marriage is forged when a man and a woman commit to be husband and wife together. They make vows before God and before others. Right? And it's the same for the local church. God's people have to make a commitment to one to another to do all that Jesus commanded his people to do together. Gather for worship. Build one another up in love. Go into the world and sow gospel seed. Celebrate baptism and the Lord's table. How then does the church sanction this commitment to one another in the local assembly? How how does the church enact that commitment one to another? Answer, baptism and the Lord's table. The ordinances. Baptism is where individual faith goes public and the church says, this one belongs to Christ. The Lord's table, however, is where the church renews that commitment to Christ and his people in the local assembly. But the Lord's table is unique from baptism in that the Lord's table is something we do as one, as a body. So baptism and the Lord's table circumscribe a a boundary around the church, marking it out as distinct from the world. So to go back to our original point, how does a gaggle of gospel-believing, baptized Christians become a church? Essentially, when they celebrate the Lord's table together. That's what marks them out as a church. And so when you and I come around the Lord's table, we are reaffirming our commitment to Christ and to each other. If you've received Christ's benefits ratified through the new covenant in his blood, guess what? You've agreed to receive God's people as your brothers and sisters. It's a package deal. Baptism binds one to many. Lord's table binds many into one. So we need to reorient how we think about and approach the Lord's table. And we'll unpack that next Sunday as we look at the problem, the issues that were concerning them and what Paul is warning them against in these verses. But the Lord's table is a corporate expression of our worship rather than just an individualistic expression of devotion, even though there are individual benefits that we derive from it. Lastly, the panorama of of the Lord's table begins with God's people Israel. It finds its fullest significance in the Gospels. It marks out as we've said, the gathering of the church in the present, and lastly, it points us to the glory of heaven in the future. It points us to the glory of heaven in the future. As uh, Bobby Jameson says on his little booklet on the Lord's table, he says, what do fireworks shows and God's plan of salvation have in common? They save the best for last. And the book of Revelation reminds us what we as believers are waiting for, what our hope is as Christians. And our hope, as we studied at the end of uh, chapter 9, our hope, that which we are anticipating, is God himself, that we would dwell with him face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, where our hope is a new creation in which righteousness dwells and reigns, a perfect, uh, a place of perfect holiness, joy, fellowship with Christ, 
and his people forever and ever. That is what we are expecting. That is what we are anticipating. And when God finally joins himself to us in that final day, the scriptures tell us there will be a feast. The marriage in that feast has a name. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, verse 7, at the end of all that has happened, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And Jesus he hints at this feast when he elevates the Passover into the Lord's and turns it into the Lord's table in Matthew 26. But he's, after he had given these elements, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is alluding to that future day. And here's the thing. The Lord's table then doesn't just look back at the cross. It also looks forward to Christ's glorious kingdom. When all will be made new, when faith will become sight, and when Jesus himself will dwell with his people. I think, I think that is why Paul says what he says in chapter 11. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, proclaim the Lord's death. And then he adds this little prepositional phrase, until he comes, until he comes. When we come around the Lord's table, we are not just remembering the past renewing our, or renewing our commitment to Christ and his people in the present. We are also receiving a foretaste of the future. And the bread and the cup don't just remind us of the brokenness and the brutality of sin and its past. They also point us to our glorious rest and refreshment in the future. God has saved his best for last. And until then, we wait. And that's what Paul tells us. We should know that. We know our New Testament. We know we were saved, Paul says in Romans 8, in hope. In hope. It's not only this, we have the first fruits of the Spirit now. And even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is that longing that we have for future glory. For in hope we have been saved in that sphere, in that realm. But he says, don't forget, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? And the obvious answer is no one. But he says, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And so the Lord's table becomes a vital link to that hope. It reminds us of that future hope, that day when we will enjoy the glories of what Christ has purchased for us, our salvation. When we enjoy that, not only with him, but with his people forever and ever. And so as we come around the Lord's table, as we're about to do, all of that is in view. And next Sunday, we'll unpack the details of Paul's correction and hopefully some of the implications that that has. Because what Paul says in these verses helps us understand, and now that we understand the background and the connections and how this is traced through the scriptures, I think that has implications, practical implications for how we come to the Lord's table and what does it mean to do that in a worthy way, in an unworthy way, 
And how do we do that in a way that glorifies Christ? Or how can we do that in a way that detract, detracts and, and denigrates the gospel in Christ? We have to be careful for that too. So we'll get into that next Sunday. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have within us. And indeed, hope that we see is not hope. We, we hope for what we do not see. and We long and look with anticipation to that future day, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who saves, and yet you save through the blood of a sacrifice, through the blood sacrifice of another, a substitute. And you demonstrated that love that you have for sinners by going to the cross and offering yourself up in the place, in our place, to bear the wrath that we deserve. Lord, we thank you that you would love us with such a great love. And Lord, so as we come around the Lord's table now, we ask that you would um, help us to draw the past forward into the present in our own minds and hearts as one body, as your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.